0: Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky. Do I dare? Do I dare disturb the universe? These are the words of British poet and author T.S. Eliot. Welcome to Universe University. I'm your host, Chris Grant. And today, we'll be paying tribute to a great leader, a man whose work changed the course of human history forever and shifted the balance of power between superpowers. A man who dared to disturb the universe. In our last episode, we followed the work of an enigmatic Soviet engineer known only as the Chief Designer, a man who yearned to answer a curiosity he'd had since his youth. What exactly existed outside the Earth's atmosphere? The Chief Designer lofted the first satellite into orbit at the height of the Cold War, shocking the United States and the world in what some dubbed a Pearl Harbor in outer space. Shortly thereafter, this same man sent the first living thing into space, the first robotic probe to the moon, the first human being into space. Much to the unrelenting embarrassment of the United States. In a desperate, outlandish gamble, President Kennedy responded to the international humiliation by declaring that his own nation would land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth by the end of the decade. Despite the fact that Americans had logged only 15 minutes of flight time in outer space. And yet, they had a slim chance of pulling off such an achievement. Working for the United States was an accomplished German rocket scientist named Erner von Braun, who had been telling people since he was a teenager That he would one day travel to the moon. And he was now working closely with NASA to accomplish just that. The people of Earth saw a prophecy that was sure to be fulfilled. In just a few years' time, a human being would attempt to set foot on the surface of an alien world in outer space, more than 200,000 miles away. That human being would either be a Soviet or an American citizen. Probably a Soviet. If indeed this prophecy were fulfilled, it would be an incredible journey that had previously only been conceived of in science fiction. But regardless of who got there first, human spaceflight was extraordinarily dangerous, and by the time it was all over, human lives would almost certainly be sacrificed in the endeavor. We hope you'll join us now for the second part of our series on the space race, Into the Great Wide Open. If the United States were to land a man on the moon, President Kennedy knew he would need to rally public support, for it would take a great investment of money and resources before the American people would see any results at all. So he addressed the public directly in a speech at Rice University.
1: Those who came before us made certain that this country rode the first waves of the Industrial Revolution the first waves of modern invention, and the first wave of nuclear power. And this generation does not intend to founder in the backwash of the coming age of space. We mean to be a part of it. We mean to lead it. (laughs) For the eyes of the world, Now look into space, to the moon, and to the planets beyond. And we have vowed that we shall not see it governed by a hostile flag of conquest, but by a banner of freedom and peace. We have vowed that we shall not see space filled with weapons of mass destruction, but with instruments of knowledge and understanding. Yet the vows of this nation can only be fulfilled if we in this nation are first, and therefore we intend to be first. In short, our leadership in science and industry, our hopes for peace and security, our obligations to ourselves as well as others, all require us to make this effort to solve these mysteries to solve them for the good of all men and to become the world's leading space-faring nation we set sail on this new sea because there is new knowledge to be gained and new rights to be won and they must be won and used for the progress of all people
0: When President Kennedy declared that the United States was going to land a man on the moon before 1970, Soviet Premier Khrushchev did not dignify it with a response. In the realm of outer space, the Soviet Union had nothing to prove to America. But of course, such a feat was certainly something that the mighty Soviet Union could pull off. It was in the early 1960s that Sweden's Nobel Prize Committee approached Khrushchev informing him that they would like to offer the Nobel Peace Prize to the chief designer of the Soviet space program. But they could not do so without knowing his name. The world marveled at his accomplishments, but the man's name was a state secret. There were some Soviet leaders who feared that if Western powers knew the chief designer's name, he might become a target for assassination. Even many of the cosmonauts who worked for him didn't know his identity. He was simply known as the Chief Designer. A space czar who was revered like a god and had authority that no NASA administrator could ever dream of. Khrushchev graciously turned down the award on behalf of the Chief Designer, saying that such accomplishments belonged to all the Soviet people, not to one man. His real name was Korolyov With dark, piercing eyes, he was a brilliant, ambitious, and demanding leader. Convinced he would never receive any personal recognition for his work, he nevertheless sought to ensure that all the people of Earth would remember the results forever, even if he was to be forgotten. After being imprisoned in a Soviet gulag in the 1930s, Korolyov's worldview was bitter and pessimistic. He was often said to remark, We are all going to be whacked, and there will be no obituary he still sometimes received threatening phone calls late at night from the Soviet secret police. After all his recent successes, Korolyov was now under more pressure than ever to orchestrate more historic space-firsts. If he failed to deliver, his job and perhaps even his life might be at stake. He had already sent a man into space, completing one full orbit around the Earth. Back in the United States, NASA was eager to send a man into orbit before the end of 1961. The Soviet Union had beat them to the punch. Now, all America would hope for was to do the same thing within the same year. Two American astronauts had skimmed the edge of space in suborbital flights, yet for all of President Kennedy's talk about sending a man to the moon, not a single American had ever orbited the Earth. Worse yet, in the summer of 1961, a cosmonaut named German Titov had orbited the Earth a whopping 17 times. One Mercury astronaut, Marine Corps aviator and engineer John Glenn, would be the first American to attempt a trip into orbit. Glenn was a veteran of both World War II and Korea, earning six distinguished flying crosses during his time as a fighter pilot. Yuri Gagarin, the first man to orbit the Earth, had been just 27 years old at the time. John Glenn was 40. The Soviets had shared none of their knowledge about orbital spaceflight with the United States. It was possible that their journey might be extremely taxing on the human body. Glenn would be given a medical kit with morphine for pain relief and medication to treat any symptoms of shock. An Atlas rocket, a converted ICBM, arrived at the launch complex in Florida during the winter of 1961. America was desperate to show the world that they could match what the Soviets had already done and do it within the same year. But they wouldn't be able to take all of the precautions they would have liked. The end of the year deadline came and went. After numerous delays, Glenn was sealed in a capsule atop the Atlas rocket in January of 1962 and the countdown began. Then it stopped at T-minus 29 minutes, and the launch had to be postponed. There were concerns about launching the rocket under cloud cover. A new plan was made to launch the rocket on February 1st, but on the day that technicians began fueling the tanks with liquid propellant, the rocket began leaking fuel. That didn't inspire anyone's confidence and the launch was canceled. Finally, on February 20th, Glenn was once again sealed in his space capsule atop the Atlas rocket. On that day, the Atlas roared to life, and John Glenn rose from the launch pad through a massive cloud of gray smoke and flames, hurtling into the upper atmosphere. Lofted into orbit in the weightless environment of outer space, with the outline of continents and oceans below, John Glenn uttered the famous phrase, zero G and I feel fine. He would not need morphine for pain relief. But by his second orbit around the Earth, a flight controller back on the ground discovered something troubling. Readings indicated that Glenn's heat shield, designed to protect him during re-entry, had slipped out of place. Perhaps it had shifted during launch. Now, only a few flimsy straps might be holding the precious heat shield of the spacecraft. After careful discussion, it was agreed that the straps would likely hold, but that Glenn should re-enter the Earth's atmosphere after just three orbits. He did just that. As Glenn's tiny capsule slammed into the upper atmosphere of the Earth, it was enveloped in a colorful stream of plasma. Such a dramatic and fiery re-entry was to be expected in space flight, Glenn just hoped his craft could survive it. With the weight of crushing G-forces pressing down on his chest and the blinding light of re-entry shining in through the window, Glenn began to see chunks of something solid whizzing past his window as he fell to Earth. He feared that those solid pieces of debris might very well be fragments of his heat shield, disintegrating in the fireball. Despite all of this, John Glenn made it back to Earth, alive and well. He had survived and would forever be known as the first American to orbit the Earth. Of course, John Glenn's historic flight did nothing to impress Korolev, who had now sent multiple men into orbit. The real question was, what now? Naturally, he'd be sending people to the moon in a few years, but how could he appease his Soviet superiors in the meantime, and do so with only the resources he had at the present moment? The answer was actually quite simple, and it was his chance to give Khrushchev what he really wanted, a political victory to boast about in space. Korolev had already sent the first man into space. Why not the first woman? Since Soviet spacecraft were controlled remotely from the ground, Korolev wouldn't even need to find female pilots. Just a few Soviet women strong enough, tough enough, and healthy enough to survive the journey. Yuri had ejected from his capsule and parachuted to the ground in mankind's first space journey. So the female candidates would also have to be experienced parachutists. From a pool of thousands, five women were selected for cosmonaut training. They went through all the same tests as their male counterparts, including being placed in a centrifuge that swung them in dizzying circles at fantastic speeds to simulate the crushing G-forces of re-entry. Soviet doctors couldn't agree on whether a woman could even survive the journey, and if a woman could survive, would there be serious damage done to her reproductive system? One of the women recalled what it was like to train with the chief designer, saying, Only he could have criticized and loved us so much at the same time. We were both afraid of him and adored him, we simply loved him, and were so unbelievably lucky to be mentored by him. Just as in the selection of Yuri, Premier Khrushchev intervened to ensure that the most politically viable candidate would be selected, rather than the most qualified one. One of the five women was Valentina Tereshkova, a young parachutist, about the same age that Yuri had been when he first flew. She had parachuted out of a plane ninety times, but didn't always receive the best grades for her jumps, often landing far off course at the other end of the field. But she had been head of the local Communist Party Youth Committee. Her mother was a milkmaid, and her father had died fighting in World War II. In the eyes of Premier Khrushchev, she had the perfect biography. And so Tereshkova was chosen, despite the fact that she was not the most well-qualified candidate in a group of five women that included a teacher, a mathematician, and an engineer. For all his authority, Korolev had no power over the final selection. The decision had been made. The Soviet general, in charge of cosmonaut training, admitted privately in his personal journal, quote, On the whole, she isn't the best choice. Rumors spread among the women that Tereshkova had been selected and they were all brought in for a meeting with the chief designer. Standing in front of him in their new uniforms, many of the women hoped that the rumors about Tereshkova were false. The imposing chief designer stood up and looked at one well qualified, dark haired female candidate named Panamariova. Comrade Panamariova, he said, if Valentina Tereshkova were selected, Would you be offended? he asked. Taking a deep breath, she responded bravely. Yes, I would. I'd be very upset, she said. A subtle grin spread across the chief designer's face. That's right. I would be too. But you will all fly into space one day. While visiting her mother, Valentina Tereshkova offered a cover story. She said that she had been invited to join the National Soviet Parachuting Team in Moscow and that she would be leaving soon to go on the trip. In June of 1963, Korolev threw a switch and the rocket beneath Valentina Tereshkova roared to life. She shouted, Hey Sky, take off your hat, I'm on my way. Tereshkova's mother heard the news just like every other Soviet citizen, on the radio but Valentina's first day in outer space was not an easy one. She was nauseous, unable to eat, though she later attributed this to the taste of the food rather than anything physical. One cosmonaut, Alexei Leonov, confirmed that Tereshkova was indeed quite sick during her flight, saying, quote, The first 24 hours were really tough for her, but no one really feels great up there. Indeed, the reality is that Many space travelers throughout history, both male and female, experience a phenomenon known as space sickness, which typically includes nausea, as the body attempts to adjust to the effects of weightlessness and microgravity in outer space. It was said that she struggled to orient the craft when given commands from the ground, perhaps a result of the space sickness. But Tereshkova had survived, proving that women could fly in space just as men did, and she would go on to spend a total of three days in orbit before returning into the Earth's atmosphere. After the fireball of plasma had come and gone, with her metal sphere in freefall in the Earth's atmosphere, she ejected, her helmet slamming into the bridge of her nose and injuring her face. Deploying her parachute, she landed in Kazakhstan, and an entire village turned out to greet her, the first woman to fly in space. She smiled graciously as they offered her boiled potatoes to eat, her appetite now returning. Tereshkova, in turn, offered the villagers her own prepackaged space food as souvenirs. When Soviet scientists learned of this, they thought perhaps she had done this to ensure that no one would ever know just how badly the flight had affected her appetite and how sick she had really been. Some Americans tried to downplay Tereshkova's historic flight. After all, sending a woman into space didn't require inventing any new hardware or creating a new spacecraft. America had plans to go to the moon, and this was merely a propaganda stunt. Yet Tereshkova's spaceflight wasn't merely impressive because of her gender. Only a few weeks earlier, in the final flight of America's Mercury space program, astronaut Gordon Cooper had orbited the Earth 22 times, spending just over a day in space. In contrast, Tereshkova had orbited the Earth a whopping 48 times, spending more than three days in space. Not only had Tereshkova spent more time in space than Gordon Cooper, she had spent more time in space than all seven Mercury astronauts. Combined. Such a flight proved that the Soviets were still ahead in the space race. Even if Tereshkova had been a man, her flight would have been a resounding success for the Soviet space program. The mission had also marked another space first. Tereshkova was the first civilian to ever fly in space. The defeat for America was made more bitter by the fact that a group of American women had passed all the same physical tests endured by the seven male Mercury astronauts and the women were professional pilots as well. They were dubbed the Flats, or First Lady Astronaut Trainees. But due to the massive number of applications NASA had received from people in a variety of different professions, they stated unequivocally that they would now only be accepting applications from experienced military test pilots, and there were no women in the U.S. military who were flying as test pilots and only a very small number of men. Furthermore, the world was not impressed when America sent the second man into space, and the world certainly wouldn't be impressed if they sent the second woman to space. NASA's focus was now shifting to Project Gemini, a plan to send two astronauts into space in a larger capsule on longer-duration flights to hone their skills and test the type of technology that would, hopefully, take men to the moon. There was still a lot of discussion, though, about what that hardware would look like. Speaking practically, just what sort of space vehicles would be needed to land a man on the moon and return him safely to Earth. Neither the United States nor the Soviet Union had ever achieved a soft landing on the moon with a robotic probe, let alone a human crew. The first Soviet probe to the moon had been a lunar impactor, A man-made meteor designed to simply reach the moon and crash into its surface. And even that had been an impressive technological achievement. An enormous rocket would need to be developed, something far larger than anything that had ever been flown by the United States or even the Soviet Union. And what about the spacecraft that would land men on the moon? Von Braun had conceived of a massive vehicle for three astronauts, It would include an engine to slow the craft's descent to the moon, to take off later, along with a heat shield to protect the three astronauts when they finally re-entered the Earth's atmosphere after the journey. In all, the vehicle that landed on the moon would be about 70 feet tall. At a time when the United States was struggling to launch 70-foot-tall rockets into space, von Braun proposed landing one backwards on the moon one quiet, reserved engineer named John Hobolt proposed an alternative. Use two small spacecraft instead of one large one. One craft could re-enter the Earth's atmosphere at the end of the journey, while another, smaller landing craft, could undock and land two men on the surface of the moon, while the third waited in orbit to pick them up later. It sounded simple enough, but there was a catch when the two men returned from the surface of the moon in the lander, they would have to dock with the mother ship in orbit around the moon if they were to have any chance of returning home to Earth. It was called Lunar Orbit Rendezvous. For many engineers and rocket scientists at NASA, the idea seemed ludicrous. No two craft had ever docked in outer space before. The idea of taking two spacecraft, each of them moving at about 5 miles per second, over 17,000 miles per hour, and linking them up and connecting them was incredibly dangerous. Engineers conceded that perhaps someday it could be done. It was theoretically possible. But hanging the success of an entire moon mission on docking two vehicles together while in orbit around a foreign celestial body was just too risky. Von Braun rolled his eyes at such an absurd fantasy. He had been thinking deeply about a voyage to the moon since he was a teenager and knew in his heart that the idea proposed by Hobolt was merely the fantasy of a naive engineer whose name no one knew. For all the confidence Hobolt expressed about his silly little fantasy, Von Braun knew his own judgment was superior. Just a few years prior, a Navy team competing with von Braun was awarded a satellite contract, and the rocket underneath the satellite blew up on the launch pad. On a mission to the moon, the stakes would be even higher, and three men's lives would be at risk. Von Braun's Nazi past led many Americans to question his morals. But there were few who questioned his brilliance. When Hobolt again voiced the idea to von Braun, Von Braun looked at him sternly and said, Hobolt, cut the lunar rendezvous crap. So Hobolt did the unthinkable. He went over Von Braun's head and wrote a letter addressed directly to NASA administrators, risking his career. The letter read, quote, I fully realize that contacting you in this manner is somewhat unorthodox, but the issues at stake are crucial enough to us all that an unusual course is warranted. Since we have only had occasional and limited contact, you may feel that you are dealing with a crank. Do not be afraid of this. The important thing is that you hear the ideas directly. Ultimately, Hobolt explained that lunar orbit rendezvous was the only way to land a human being on the moon by the end of the decade. Von Braun wasn't happy when he learned that Hobolt had gone over his head. If Hobolt couldn't respect Von Braun's expertise, perhaps he needed to be fired. Then again, Von Braun understood something about obsession. He himself was met with many disbelievers and skeptics when he first voiced his ideas. Sometimes the most brilliant ideas find the fewest supporters, and maybe... Just maybe, Hobolt was right. On a mundane day at NASA in 1962, von Braun's own staff gave a detailed presentation on von Braun's plan to land a 70-foot-tall rocket in reverse on the lunar surface. Von Braun himself stood up and said that while he was very proud of the work his team had done, he was going to formally recommend Hobolt's idea for Lunar Orbit Rendezvous the room fell silent. Von Braun's own staff were baffled. Hobolt was not fired, and American aircraft manufacturers would soon be lining up to design this lunar landing craft, which would ferry human beings to the surface of another world. Khrushchev was pushing harder than ever for more historic space firsts to boast about. He had recently signed a nuclear test-ban treaty welcomed by Western powers, but derided by many of his communist allies. Some Soviets also blamed Khrushchev for a deteriorating relationship with communist China. The Soviet government was pushing Korolev towards conducting a test flight of another, more advanced spacecraft called the Soyuz, a craft that soon might take astronauts all the way to the moon. But the Soyuz wasn't ready for flight yet, and Korolyov knew it would be at least another year, perhaps two before it could fly. He was also overseeing a plan to send two astronauts into space at once. Hopefully it would fly before America's two-person Gemini spacecraft. Korolyov's craft was called the Voskod, the Russian word for sunrise, and it was nearly finished. There was no way to know exactly when the first manned Gemini flights would take place. But if each nation had two-person ships circling the Earth, the space race would merely be a tie. He couldn't afford to let this happen. There had to be a way to at least maintain the perception that the Soviet Union was continuing to dominate in the space race. Once again, the solution was actually quite simple— but it would also be a bold gamble. Strip down the inside of the Vosod spacecraft's cramped cockpit as much as possible, remove anything and everything that wasn't absolutely essential, and launch not two cosmonauts into space, but three. So the chief designer gave his team their orders. A pilot named Komarov was selected to command the mission. The military demanded that Korolev place Soviet Air Force pilots in the remaining two seats. Korolev refused. He needed a doctor on board to conduct biomedical tests on the physical effects of spaceflight. He also wanted one of the engineers who designed the craft to fly inside it personally. In the past, Korolev had been forced, against his will, to select inferior candidates for spaceflights. But not this time. It was his space program now. Cosmonauts from Yuri to Valentina Tereshkova had ejected from their spacecraft, rather than risking a hard landing on the ground. There would be no room for ejection seats this time. The crew would just have to chance it. Parachutes and some small rockets could ease their descent. The first cosmonauts had also worn bulky spacesuits, in case their cabin depressurized in space there would be no room for those either this time. The crew would fly in plain clothes. None of the other flights had experienced cabin depressurization, so it probably wouldn't happen this time. Three flimsy seats were shoehorned into the absurdly claustrophobic capsule, and Korolev put the three-man crew on a near-starvation diet to ensure that they would all fit inside on the day of the launch like clowns into a Volkswagen. Privately, his critics dubbed the flight a space circus. But Korolev would have his three-man crewed flight, just as he wanted. The men walked out to the launch pad, donning futuristic coats that looked more like blue sweaters than flight suits, and small helmets that looked more fitting for an afternoon bicycle ride than a trip into space. Less than a decade after Korolev had shocked the world with the launch of the first satellite, he threw a switch and launched the first three-man crew into orbit around the Earth, before America had ever launched two men. Twenty-four hours later, and the crew reported that the mission was a success. Despite cramped conditions, Commander Komarov even suggested that the mission be extended by another day, Korolev refused. They had already taken more than enough risks for one mission. Speaking into the radio, Korolev said, There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. We will go, nevertheless, by the program. The ship fired its rockets and re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. With many on Korolev's team holding their breaths, the capsule deployed its parachutes fired its descent rockets, and touched down safely amid light snow flurries. All three men were alive. Korolev's massive gamble, his space circus, had been a success. Unbeknownst to the three cosmonauts, Premier Khrushchev had been ousted in a coup shortly after they left Earth. When they returned, a new government greeted them. Though that new government would also have their sights set on the moon. Von Braun was baffled. The Soviets were a nation whose politics and government were in political upheaval, yet their space program was working flawlessly. A three-man capsule? A crew in strange clothes that didn't need spacesuits? A spacecraft that landed on hard ground without the men ejecting? Who had orchestrated such a feat could it be possible that some of von Braun's former, lower-level German employees, from the Nazi facility at Peenemünde were now residing in the Soviet Union? Surely some German engineering had played a role in all of these Soviet space-firsts. Or was it merely a team of brilliant Soviets, literally being forced to work around the clock? Either way, he would have to push his own team harder than ever to catch up. Morale was waning, and there was a lingering, unspoken feeling that the United States would soon watch as the Soviet Union landed men on the moon. If nothing else, though, von Braun had a plan to beat the Russians. A design for a new family of rockets, known as Saturn. The largest of its kind would be the Saturn V, and to say it was ambitious would be an understatement. Military ICBMs were adapted for flights into low-Earth orbit, but to get to the moon, something larger and wholly unique was required. A multi-stage rocket would be needed to loft a larger, heavier spacecraft into outer space. Each stage of the rocket would essentially be a massive fuel tank. After all the fuel was burned off, the empty stage would be jettisoned, and the next stage would ignite. The final rocket stage would ignite in outer space, up in Earth orbit, to break free from the gravity of the Earth and push on to the Moon. Two decades prior, von Braun's V-2 rocket was dubbed welgeswaffen the Vengeance Weapon, German retaliation for British airstrikes during World War II. Von Braun's Saturn rocket would be another Vengeance Weapon, a chance to retaliate for the endless humiliation he and the United States had faced in the space race, to score the ultimate victory in the Cold War and seize the ultimate high ground, the Moon. But his old V-2 rockets had been just 40 feet tall. A Saturn V would be almost 10 times that height. It would weigh about 6 million pounds at liftoff and much of that weight would be fuel. The first stage alone would be over 130 feet tall, with not one rocket engine, but five. If it could be fully completed and launched successfully, the Saturn V would be the largest space vehicle ever constructed. The first stage would need to be thoroughly tested, so a facility was created just outside of Huntsville, for that very purpose in Alabama. Producing enough thrust to lift the completed Saturn V off the Earth would involve heat and pressures never seen before. The force of the rocket engine could very well crack the pavement of the launch pad, and the flames would melt the launch tower. So a device called a flame bucket was constructed to deflect the immense amount of heat. The initial test firings of the Saturn V's first stage shattered windows in downtown Huntsville, shocking local residents. The tests revealed a problem, though. Combustion instability. Swirling flames during ignition that could destroy the first stage a mere few seconds into takeoff. Months were devoted to trying to fix it, but successfully completing the first stage didn't mean that the second and third stage wouldn't present their own problems. Von Braun encountered the same challenge when he built liquid-fueled V-2 rockets. The controlled explosion that lifted the rocket wasn't always so well controlled, and the Saturn V would be his most ambitious rocket yet. On Soviet soil, Korolyov had been lobbying for years for government leadership to agree to fund his N1 rocket, a booster that could be used to send humans not only to the moon, but to the planets Mars and Venus as well. Thanks to the political capital created by his accomplishments in the space race, Korolev knew that human exploration of the solar system was now within his grasp. As a young man, he had designed and flown his own gliders. Now he was on the verge exploring the moon and the planets beyond. But for all its prowess, Korolyov's space program did not have the money or resources that the American space program had. His historic accomplishments in space had been achieved on a budget, and this one would be no different. The Americans had lavish facilities for von Braun, but Korolyov would have no such luxuries. He would not be able to test his rocket before it flew. Unlike the Americans, he would not be able to create five massively powerful engines on the first stage either. And there were rumors that Von Braun and the Americans were struggling with such a design anyway. As always, he would need to innovate. In the first stage of the N1 rocket, instead of five giant rocket engines, Korolyov would use a whopping 24 smaller rocket engines around the base, and 6 rocket engines at the center. Like in von Braun's design, there would be multiple stages. Large fuel tanks stacked one on top of the other. But when it was complete, the N1 would be even more powerful than the Saturn V. Unfortunately, though, without facilities to test each rocket engine before flight, and with such new and innovative designs, it was almost guaranteed that there would be failures. Explosive mishaps that Korolev and his team could learn from and use to make a better rocket. It was a process of trial and error that had ultimately brought success throughout his career, even if his critics were initially skeptical. But how could he appease his political superiors and his engineering team in the meantime. Despite his leadership and genius, Korolyov was still years away from completing the Soyuz spacecraft and the N-1 rocket. Those machines could take cosmonauts to the moon, but maybe not soon enough. New leaders were in charge of the Soviet Union, and they wanted proof that under their rule, the Soviet Union was just as dominant in space as it had been under Khrushchev. Korolev could promise a moon landing, but there were a handful of rival engineers who thought that they could do his job better than him. They saw Korolev less as an ambitious boss, and more like a ruthless dictator. In childhood, Korolev had been the victim of bullying, and struggled to make friends. In adulthood, one or more of his co-workers had accused him of treason, and he was imprisoned in a gulag. But he was working now to make history, not to make friends. If even Khrushchev himself had fallen victim to a coup, Korolev knew that he could too. So he would need to prove his worth, to buy some time to finish building his moon machines. Each historic space first had risked cosmonauts' lives, but they had been calculated risks. Bold, perhaps but calculated. America's Project Gemini would test all the basic skills needed for a round trip to the moon. After landing on the moon, a moonwalk would follow. A spacewalk was a logical stepping stone to the moon. Gemini astronauts hadn't flown yet, but they were already training for a spacewalk. Extravehicular activity, or EVA, Leaving the safety of one spacecraft and climbing out into whatever harsh environment existed outside. In this case, the empty, near vacuum of space. It would be another calculated risk. And as always, the Soviets would have to take it first to stay in the lead. In orbit around the Earth, temperatures and sunlight are well over 200 degrees Fahrenheit. On the night side of the Earth, Temperatures dropped to negative 100 degrees Fahrenheit or colder. Temperatures on the airless moon would be much the same. It was new territory, but Korolev would find someone who could attempt it. That man's name was Alexei Leonov. In the spring of 1965, Leonov and a fellow cosmonaut would ride another Soviet rocket into space. The Voshod spacecraft had already carried a crew of three, it could easily carry two men in full spacesuits. So as not to disturb the pressure inside the spacecraft, Korolev's team had hastily designed a fabric airlock, which was slowly inflated after the two cosmonauts reached orbit. The airlock was only about eight feet long by four feet wide on the inside. If Lanov's tether broke, or if he was unable to get back inside for some reason, his fellow cosmonaut was instructed not to attempt to rescue him. The Soviet Union couldn't afford losing one cosmonaut, let alone two. For this reason, the helmet on Lanov's spacesuit was fitted with a suicide pill, just in case. In orbit around the Earth, Lanov closed the craft's door behind him and squeezed through the cramped, narrow tunnel before popping open the hatch on the other end. As he slid out of the airlock, he attached a camera outside to film the historic moment. He was now the first human in history to venture outside the confines of his spaceship. Above him was a glaring contradiction, the blinding orb of the sun shining in his eyes, set in a dark, jet-black sky, and far below him, the orange-and-tan color palette of the Sahara Desert, the outline of North Africa, and the deep blue Mediterranean Sea. With his tether connected to the airlock, he floated aimlessly in the microgravity of outer space. He offered a casual wave to the camera, trying to make his spacewalk look easy and routine. But the reality was far more awkward and disorienting, as he began drifting uncontrollably, further and further away from the capsule. Finally, he felt his body jerk to a halt, constrained by the long tether to the ship. After a few minutes, Leonov noticed something concerning. The bulky spacesuit he was wearing seemed to be ballooning out, getting larger and larger, to the point where his fingers were nearly slipping out of the gloves. Looking at the narrow airlock in front of him, he knew he would quickly need to get back to his ship. They would be passing back behind the night side of the earth in just a few minutes' time, and everything would fall dark. And that wouldn't make it any easier to get back inside. Pulling himself towards the ship by his tether, he pushed with all his strength to force himself into the cramped airlock. But try as he might, his suit was now too bulky for him to squeeze back into the narrow space. With no other options, and without consulting with ground control, Lanov began venting the air from inside his suit, out into outer space, until he was only at half-pressure. He was now on the verge of suffering from decompression sickness, a phenomenon known to scuba divers and often referred to as the bends. While he was instructed to enter the airlock feet-first, with darkness approaching, He dove inside, head first, twisting and contorting his body to close the hatch and seal the claustrophobic airlock, which was now starting to feel more like a coffin. With his body temperature skyrocketing, he began sweating profusely as he strained to close the airlock door and then to open the hatch to his spacecraft. It seemed like a simple maneuver but wearing a bulky spacesuit in microgravity, it was excruciatingly difficult. He nearly experienced heatstroke as globs of sweat sloshed around in his suit as he tried to open the door to his craft. Once back inside, the crew faced a new problem. The spacecraft's door wouldn't seal properly. The door needed to be completely closed if they would have any chance of surviving the searing heat of re-entry. In the cold of space, on the dark side of the Earth, the outer shell of the craft had contracted to a smaller size. But after several attempts, they were finally able to force the hatch shut. The two men breathed a sigh of relief. Like every other Soviet spaceflight, Voshod 2 had an automated reentry system. But within seconds, the astronauts realized that due to a glitch in the system, the rockets on the spacecraft had failed to fire. With the help of ground control, they were able to unlock the spacecraft controls and initiate a manual re-entry, something that had never been done before by the Soviets. As the craft slammed into the atmosphere and fiery plasma engulfed them, they knew that they were going to be landing off course, not on the temperate plains of Kazakhstan, but in the frozen wilderness of Siberia. Shortly thereafter, the families of the two cosmonauts received word that they had landed, been recovered, and were now resting comfortably before they would attend a debriefing. In reality, Soviet engineers were in a frenzied panic. They didn't know where the two cosmonauts had landed, or even if they were still alive. Helicopter rescue teams would soon be scouring Siberia and the Ural Mountains to recover the two men, but it would take time. When Lanov opened the hatch of his spacecraft, he was crestfallen. A haze of snow was blowing in almost horizontally, and a canopy of tall pine trees extended as far as the eye could see. The shroud of trees would make it almost impossible for helicopters to find them. Worse yet, the craft's heating system was now broken, and it would be getting dark in a few hours. From their survival training, they knew that the area was full of bears, which would be made even more aggressive than usual, considering it was their mating season. Luckily, Soviet space missions at the time carried a gun and plenty of ammunition, just in case they landed in a hostile foreign country. Leonov loaded his pistol, emptied the buckets of sweat that had pooled up in his boots, rang out his soaking wet clothes as best he could, and he and his fellow cosmonaut began gathering wood to build a fire. They would spend the night in temperatures that dropped well below freezing. But the following day, rescue teams would arrive on skis, carrying food, clothing, medical supplies to treat hypothermia, and cameras to photograph the newest Soviet space celebrity. Korolev's gamble had again paid off, just as it always did. A bold gamble by a brilliant space czar, achieved by a daring Soviet test pilot. Leonov had done well, and a Soviet had completed the first spacewalk. Now more than ever, Korolev's authority could not be questioned. He could now comfortably set his sights on the moon he and his team were working to prepare a robotic probe that would hopefully soon make the first ever soft landing on the Earth's moon. Occasionally, though, Korolev had to take time to tend to his health. Ever since he was imprisoned in the Gulag, he had struggled with heart disease as well as kidney problems. Doctors had warned him against working such long and exhaustive hours, and on one brisk winter morning, He had taken the day off from work to have a routine surgical procedure done. But during the operation, he began to bleed uncontrollably. As doctors worked to stop the hemorrhaging, they tried to intubate him to get him oxygen. But his jaw had been broken when he was beaten in the gulag, and had never fully healed properly. So they couldn't insert a breathing tube. He died in the hospital. At long last, his secret identity could be revealed, and the world would know the name, Sergei Pavlovich Korolev. A massive state funeral was held in Moscow, and he was awarded the state's highest honor, Hero of the Soviet Union, a coveted title often given to organizations or businesses rather than individuals. Korolev used to say, we are all going to be whacked, and there will be no obituary. On that winter day in the Soviet Union, Yuri Gagarin, the first man in space, the most famous man on Earth, the man Korolev called his little eagle, gave his eulogy. The official state newspaper, Pravda, displayed a large photograph of Korolev alongside the text of his obituary. Even the ashes of his cremated body were interred in the Kremlin wall, an honor for national leaders and Soviet generals. A town in Russia was named after him, one crater on the far side of the moon, one crater on the planet Mars, and an asteroid in deep space. All bear his name. Bullied as a child, tortured and imprisoned in adulthood, harassed by late-night calls from the Soviet secret police, Korolyov led humanity into the space age and in the process humiliated the world's greatest superpower, the United States of America. Korolyov had literally worked himself to death and died at a time when his nation needed him most. Yet even after he was gone, his space program continued to ride the immense wave of momentum he had lent him. A mere two weeks after his death, the first robotic space probe made a soft landing on the moon, and it didn't sink into the dust as many had predicted. Upon hearing the news, Von Braun was baffled and humble. All this time, he had imagined a team of rivals competing with him. He never dreamed that it was all led by one man. A space czar with more brilliance, more power, and more innovation than Von Braun could ever have dreamed of. And yet, as the world mourned Korolev's death, Von Braun saw an opportunity to build on everything Korolev had learned and to reach out and grasp the moon. There was still a chance. Shortly before Korolev's death, two American astronauts had flown into space in the first crewed mission of Project Gemini, Gus Grissom and John Young. Just a few years prior, during Project Mercury, Grissom had been the second American ever to fly into space. Upon returning to Earth, his spacecraft door blew open, and he nearly drowned. Critics had speculated that Grissom had been scared and panicked hitting a button, and blowing the hatch by accident, even though there wasn't much evidence to support such a theory. Yet Grissom took all the criticism in stride, and with a sense of humor. When he orbited the Earth in Project Gemini, he named his capsule Molly Brown, after the famous, unsinkable Molly Brown, who once rode on the Titanic. Grissom's Gemini mission was flawless, and his capsule didn't sink after splashdown this time. Not long afterwards, American astronaut Ed White flew into space, stepping out of his capsule and floating in Earth orbit. The first American spacewalk. Friendly and detail-oriented, Ed White's fellow astronauts described him as, quote, a Boy Scout. With no fabric airlock to contend with, Ed White's EVA went more smoothly than Leonov's. Such brave American test pilots made these accomplishments look easy, almost routine. But there were many close calls and dangerous gambles. Gemini capsules were launched into space under modified Titan missiles. Such missiles were originally designed as ICBMs to carry nuclear warheads, not human beings. At the time, Titan missiles had only an 80% success rate. Explosive failures were a very real risk. Just before one Gemini flight, the Titan ignited underneath the astronauts for a split second. Then it shut down. Luckily, the rocket hadn't left the launch pad, and engineers worked to resolve the engine problem. If that same rocket engine had shut down while lofting a crew into the upper atmosphere, the result could have been catastrophic. Von Braun was working long hours to build the mighty Saturn at a time when even smaller rockets like the Titan didn't have a perfect operational record. Veteran astronaut Gus Grissom had not been naive about the risks he had taken in traveling into Earth orbit on a brand new space vehicle during Project Gemini. He once said in a sobering manner, in any experimental program, sooner or later, We're going to run head-on into the law of averages. Even so, Project Gemini carried on, reaching new milestones in human spaceflight. It would take future astronauts days to get to the moon and days to return back to Earth. So NASA had to prove that, at the very least, human beings could survive in space for that long, and that the effects of weightlessness wouldn't take too much of a toll on the crew one Gemini mission, astronauts Jim Lovell and Frank Borman spent nearly two weeks orbiting the Earth in a space capsule smaller than the front seat of a car. The monotonous mission proved that human beings could live and work in space even longer than would be required for a round trip to the moon. Project Gemini marked the first time in human history that the United States of America had set an endurance record for time spent in outer space, and it was all done in a space capsule where the astronauts didn't even have enough room to stretch out their legs. Jim Lovell and Frank Borman's record would stand for years to come. Finally, America was pulling ahead of the Soviets in space. The tiny capsule splashed down in the Atlantic Ocean, and the men were recovered. Astronaut Jim Lovell was seen smiling confidently as he stretched his legs on the deck of the aircraft carrier and walked for the first time in weeks. An unshowered, unshaven Victor in the space race. In the next Gemini mission, an astronaut named Neil Armstrong would attempt the first docking of two vehicles in outer space, a crucial test to see if John Hobolt's plan for a moon mission could work. Would it really be possible to connect two vehicles together, traveling at thousands of miles per hour? If there was any pilot who could accomplish such a feat, it was Armstrong. In his youth, at age 16, he was flying a plane solo before he had a license to drive a car. He later received a Navy scholarship to study aeronautical engineering. During the Korean War, he had flown 78 separate missions by the time he was 22 years old. More recently, he had been a test pilot for the X-15 rocket plane, the fastest aircraft ever built, a plane that literally skimmed the edge of space. Having resigned his commission in the U.S. Naval Reserve, he was now a rare sight at NASA, a civilian astronaut. When he flew into orbit around the Earth on Project Gemini, With astronaut Dave Scott, the two men sighted the unmanned target vehicle that NASA had sent up into space for them to dock with. Glowing in sunlight, set in a jet-black sky, was the prize that Armstrong hoped to seize as he inched his Gemini spacecraft closer and closer to the target. Tiny gas jets on the side of his spacecraft allowed him to turn and adjust the orientation of his capsule methodically and precisely For a pilot like Armstrong, it was almost like parallel parking a car. Finally, he heard a clicking sound, and a green light blinked at his control panel. Armstrong had become the first human in history to connect two spacecraft together. The astronauts were thrilled, but it wouldn't yet be possible to share that moment with ground controllers on Earth, who were out of radio contact on the other side of the planet. Armstrong and Scott, sat looking at the curvature of the blue orb beneath them. Then the astronauts noticed something strange. The two docked craft were slowly spinning. One of the gas jet thrusters that they used to maneuver must have been stuck. But on which space vehicle? If this slow spin was being caused by the Agena target vehicle, then the problem could be solved simply by undocking. So they undocked. It did not solve the problem. Instead, the Gemini space capsule began spinning even faster, as if tumbling end over end. The stuck thruster was on their spacecraft. Out the window, they saw the blue Earth, then the black sky, then the blue Earth, then the black sky, again and again until they were spinning at one revolution per second. Out of radio contact with the Earth, they couldn't ask for instructions from mission Control. Their vision was blurring in the dizzying spin, and they were now on the verge of blacking out. Armstrong made the decision to fire his reentry rockets. It was the only way to stop the spin. Falling back into the atmosphere, they prepared for an emergency landing. There was a recovery team waiting in the Atlantic Ocean, but they would be splashing down in the Pacific, on the opposite end of the Earth. As they deployed their parachutes to slow their descent, a U.S. Air Force pilot spotted the capsule from the air. Armstrong and Scott would spend hours rocking back and forth, feeling seasick as their capsule drifted in the open ocean. But later that day, they would be rescued. David Scott would later say this about his fellow astronaut and pilot, Neil Armstrong. The guy was brilliant. He knew the system so well, he found the solution. He activated the solution under extreme circumstances. It was my lucky day to be flying with him. Overall, Project Gemini produced mixed results. There were many close calls, and some success stories too, but the moon was still very far away. Project Apollo would begin shortly thereafter. The first flights in the program were scheduled to be in low Earth orbit simply to test the space vehicles that would carry astronauts to the moon. The final Apollo flights would, hopefully, culminate in manned lunar landings. Many believe that astronaut Gus Grissom would be the first to set foot on the moon. After all, he was already a legend, and as America's second man in space, he was selected to command the very first Apollo flight, Flying with him would be Gemini astronaut Ed White, the first American to walk in space. Finally, at their side, would be rookie astronaut Roger Chaffee. President Kennedy had been assassinated and laid to rest years ago by this point. But all Americans were well aware of his end-of-the-decade deadline, and engineers were working hard to meet it. Out of America's entire annual budget, NASA now received about 4% of those funds, a record high. Korolyov's makeshift, claustrophobic three-person capsule had worked well enough to score a propaganda victory years earlier, but it had never been meant to carry three astronauts to the moon. In late 1966, North American Aviation delivered a full-sized, three-person spacecraft could leave Earth orbit and travel on a voyage to the moon. But there were problems. Numerous design flaws that could prove fatal on a flight into Earth orbit, let alone to anywhere else. So it was sent back to North American aviation, the hardware problems were repaired, and the astronauts beheld the final version of the capsule. One astronaut, Wally Schirra, would later hold the honor of having flown on all of America's first three space programs. According to one account, Schirah took one look at the capsule and said, quote, There's nothing wrong with the ship that I can point to, but it just makes me uncomfortable. Something about it doesn't ring right. It was January of 1967, and there was only about one month to go prior to the scheduled launch. A sort of dress rehearsal for that launch was planned, where the crew would sit sealed in their pressurized capsule atop the unfueled rocket and test out, among other things, their communication systems. Problems with those systems ensued almost immediately. Ground controllers were almost inaudible. Amid the sound of crackling static on his headset, Grissom could be heard remarking, quote, How are we going to go to the moon if we can't even talk between two or three buildings? As ground controllers worked to remedy the communications problem, they heard a single word that struck terror into their hearts. Fire. It sounded too terrible to be believed, but it was confirmed seconds later by astronaut Chaffee. We've got a fire in the cockpit. As flames swept through the spacecraft, technicians on the launch pad tried frantically to open the spacecraft's hatch but it was a 90-second process under the most ideal conditions. Eruptions of flames from the exterior of the capsule forced technicians back. It was nearly five minutes later before the hatch could be unsealed. All three astronauts perished less than a minute after the fire broke out. Commander Gus Grissom had nearly drowned returning from his first mission in space when the hatch of his capsule detached after splashdown. The perverse irony was that the new Apollo capsule had been designed to ensure that during spaceflight, it wouldn't pop open accidentally. Everyone at NASA knew that astronauts risk death when flying in space. Virtually no one could have conceived that they would face death during a routine training on Earth. There were even rumors of Soviet sabotage. It was an unforeseen and unprecedented disaster in the space program. Everyone at NASA saw that the Apollo program was now in jeopardy as an exhaustive investigation ensued. Manned space flights would be grounded for the foreseeable future. And with the Vietnam War escalating, some astronauts even requested to be allowed to return to their former jobs As military fighter pilots to aid in the war effort in Southeast Asia. Dr. John McCarthy, the director of research, engineering, and testing for North American aviation, suggested that perhaps Grissom had accidentally kicked or scuffed one of the wires inside the capsule, creating the spark that started the fire. Just like on Grissom's previous spaceflight, it was easier to suggest pilot error than to admit that someone had placed a skilled pilot on board a death trap. Dr. McCarthy quickly rescinded his accusation when it was revealed that there was no proof to support it. Indeed, inside such a small capsule, Grissom would never have been able to twist his legs far enough to reach that wiring. The spacecraft manufacturers, forced to meet even more stringent deadlines, had missed something. And technicians at NASA hadn't caught their mistake either. A piece of faulty wiring had simply sparked, and due to the design of the hatch, the astronauts couldn't extract themselves from the capsule in time. Nearly 100 new design changes would be implemented inside the capsule, and it would be rebuilt from scratch in the coming months. Von Braun was working feverishly on the Saturn V rocket, but it would take months, perhaps a year, to get it to function properly. And even if it did, what good would it do if there was no spacecraft to place on top of it? Worse yet, Soviet leaders were pressing engineers to launch the first crewed test flight of the advanced Soviet Soyuz spacecraft. And CIA reconnaissance photos in Kazakhstan noticed something unsettling. A massive rocket on the launch pad, well over 300 feet tall. Korolev's brainchild, the mighty N-1 the Soviets could put a few finishing touches on Korolev's life's work, they might end the space race once and for all. Less than three years remained before 1970, and while the United States had undeniably fallen behind yet again, there was still much work to be done before either nation could make it to the moon.